0: 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we'll read the first 11 verses. Please follow along as I read. This is the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. The people came to the camp. the elders of the Israel said, "Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the enemy sorry, the people <laughs> sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli. Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. and Israel was defeated. and They fled every man to his home. There was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The title for our message this morning is Following His Lead and Finding His Power. an outline in the bulletin if you picked one up, if it might be helpful to you. I hope you'll use it to follow along. The call from our passage under this heading is to trust in God's power by following his lead. How do you access the power of God for Christian living? And I wonder, do you ever take time to consider that idea? I I would confess to you that when I think on the power of God in my life, as I reflect on the patterns of my Christian life, the power of God is just kind of an assumed thing. We just finished a couple weeks ago studying the armor of God in the adult Sunday school class. And the big exhortation that Paul gives in that passage in Ephesians is to put on the armor of God, to stand firm, to act, to endure, to persevere. There's an action in there, again, too. to Put on the armor of God. Not something I think we do in our morning routines too much. In one sense, you could say, well, if I spend time in God's Word, then in one sense, yes, I am equipping myself with God's armor for the day. I'm accessing the power of God. I am in the act of reading my Bible early on in my day, even if only a verse, even if only for a moment. I'm at the very least acknowledging that I cannot rely on myself for what I'm doing today. And whether you engage in that thought process every day isn't as important as actually doing it, right? We access the power of God through the Word of God, illuminated by the Spirit of God, applied by the Spirit of God to us. And we sang about the source of the power of God because it begins with the moment of our salvation. And what was it that it washed away our sins, but the blood of Christ himself bringing us into the family of God? Trusting in God's power, then, means that we must follow his lead, and not the other way around, and certainly not go in an opposite direction from where he's leading us, to not try to find other sources of power. Well, let's take a moment to recap where we've been so far in Samuel. Samuel is the only son, at the moment, of Hannah, his mother, who then goes on to have more sons and daughters as a blessing from the Lord for her uh, obedience, for her submission, for her acceptance of her fate, as it were, and trusting in what God's plan is over her own. Samuel grows up in the temple. He's serving Eli. We talked last week, that excellent passage of chapter three, where he meets the word of God, where God is revealed to Samuel and Samuel's commissioned as a prophet. And the end of chapter three sounds so hopeful. Would you look back at it with me for a moment? Samuel grew, which we've seen this a few times already. The Lord was with him. He let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Everybody knew what Samuel was about. He was the one that you could go to to hear what God says, what God thinks, who God is. Samuel was there for that. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now, it's interesting for us as we come to chapter 4 to note that Shiloh doesn't get mentioned after chapter 4 here. Shiloh's done. We, we may even assume that the battle that we just read about included the destruction of the the fortress around the tabernacle called by the author here the temple, though it was a different temple than what we see later on. Shiloh's part of the story is over. Samuel's isn't, but he's not mentioned again for a couple more chapters. Actually, this is what uh, biblical scholars call what we've just entered into in chapter four: the Ark narrative of First Samuel. And there's been a lot of scholars who have seen it as sort of an an interruption in time and almost like space, kind of like a different story entirely. But at the same time, it seems very clear that God is establishing who Samuel is and then moving over to this issue of, but what about Eli, Hophni, Phinehas? What about the effect that their wickedness has had on the rest of the nation? You remember, these were the priests who would go, and while everyone was cooking their sacrifices outside of the temple, they would take a fork and take much more than what the law provided for them in each sacrifice, taking the choice parts of the meat and enjoying for themselves whatever they wished, rather than trusting God for permission. They were committing adultery and fornication before the temple. It was a mess. Three times they were warned about this, first from Eli himself you shouldn't be doing this. Second, from an unnamed prophet who comes in and says, your sons shouldn't be doing this, Eli, and doom is coming. And then finally from Samuel in chapter 3, his great, wonderful story of commission is involved with him telling Eli, there's nothing you can do now. Destruction is coming. And so chapter 4, to use the words that were delivered to Samuel, are the events that will make all the ears of those who hear it in Israel tingle. In verses 1 through 2, we get a little bit of carryover from chapter 3. Remember, when the author wrote this, he didn't write them in chapters and verses, but they're kind of helpful for us in following the movement of the story. But in the first two verses of chapter 4, we're reminded the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So Samuel's job is being done, and people are hearing the word of Samuel, i.e. the word of God. It wasn't that Samuel said things and God says, I'm going to make those my words. But rather, the prophet is the one who receives words from God and delivers them to God's people. This today happens through his word. But the word of God is spreading. And in the very next line, we get the conflicts with the Philistines resurfacing. You remember the the Philistines' first appearance is in Judges 15. And they went up against one dude. Do you remember who he was? Who was it who knocked out the Philistines pretty hard for a little while? Samson, right? It's interesting that as the Philistines hear the shout after the ark enters the camp of Israel, that they're afraid. And they have this line where they say, nothing like this has ever happened before in verse 7. It made me wonder, well, what are they expecting? They might be expecting some guy with long hair to come running at them with the jawbone of a donkey. But then again, they captured that guy, remember? They blinded him. They put his eyes out. Yeah, he tore down our temple and all that kind of stuff afterwards. And those that he killed in his death were more than he killed in his life. But the Philistines, I think, are over that. They're kind of, we're going to put that in our past and pretend like it didn't happen. This is different. The shout that they hear seems to mean something else. We see in this the working of God's sovereign hand and timing. Again, the word is, ha- is going out to all of Israel, but also at the same time, this battle is commencing. And they need to trust in what God has said. I think you can imagine where this story is going based on their defeat, that they did not trust in the word of the Lord. Verses 3 through 5, we see their solution. They go, okay, well, we lost. What do we do? Let's bring out the ark. And very interesting, if you have the ESV, if you look down, um, you'll see in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 3, the elders say, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. If you have another translation, it may say that he may save us from the power of our en- enemies, referring to God. The ESV translates that Hebrew word as it. It could actually be an it or a he in this context. We're not entirely sure. I appreciate that the ESV puts a note down there to say it could be an or he, but I think there's wisdom in translating it as it because, as we'll see in a moment, the problem the Israelites have is in trusting in a thing instead of trusting in God superstition is going to make their way in, its way into their thought process and their battle strategy. And it's going to be pretty bad. But what about this ark? We haven't heard from the ark for a good long time. If you're going through the Old Testament, we've really left it behind all the way back in the book of Joshua. And in Joshua, we have some interesting stories there that we can refer to. Of course, the big one being Jericho and the ark being involved in the march around Jericho in the center of the army. And they give a great shout and the walls come down kind of imagine that Israel, maybe the soldiers were thinking again of that story. And as they see the ark come in, their great shout was thinking, let's knock down these Philistines the way Joshua did at Jericho. But the ark, perhaps we could boil it down to representing three things. First of all, it represents presence, represents the God over all who sits upon the ark. The ark is designed as with a couple of things in mind, but first let's consider that it is designed to represent the presence of God. It is designed to represent the throne of God. Uh, the author of Samuel tells us, they brought out the ark in verse four of the covenant of the Lord of the hosts, Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim That is the cherubim, those two angels on each side that are on top of the ark. So the ark represents the presence of God, leading to the shouting of hopeful triumph. Secondly, it represents the power of God, which is our main focus this morning, following his lead and finding his power. It represents his power because his salvation has come through it. We've seen how the ark has been used at various times in the Old Testament already in order to bring salvation to his people. There seems to be power associated with it. Thirdly, it represents promise. The written covenant is stored within the ark itself, the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from Sinai. Presence, power, and promise. The elders look at the situation and they say, no ark, no presence, no ark, no power, no ark, no promise. What are we doing? I know what we should do. Bring the ark so that it can save us. They recognize the truth of Numbers 14, where Israel went out to battle at another time, and they failed because the ark was not with them. So, A plus B equals C, If we're in war, we need the ark. If we don't have the ark, we're going to lose. If we do have the ark, we're going to win. Well, it seems to have a good effect on their enemies. At first glance, in verses 6 through 9, the enemy fears the result of this. They have, really, probably the best interaction with God in this whole passage. The only right one, at least to start, they respond in fear. Fear is a good thing to have before God. Right? Not fear alone. But a healthy understanding of who God is and his power is really important. And the Philistines realize that. They've heard the stories, they've heard the Exodus. Those stories are still ringing in their ears. But then for Israel, their expectations meet reality. The expectation again, we're going to bring the ark, we're going to win. They bring the ark, and the reality is they lose, and they lose terribly. Did you notice what everyone did after the battle was lost? Every man went where? To his own home. Didn't go back to the camp. Didn't go back to uh, the commander. They didn't go back to ask, what are we going to do next? It was over at this point. And then we have the defeat in verses 10 through 11. Defeat of Israel's army the detainment of the Ark itself. What in the world does that even mean? Can you imagine being an Israelite soldier at the time and maybe being the one who sees the Ark being taken off by the Philistines? The Ark represents God. And in, in the pagan understanding of war and your interaction of deity within war, if your enemy takes your representation of your God away from you, your God is defeated. They've lost to the gods of the Philistines. defeat, detainment, and then lastly, death in verse 11. Hophni and Phinehas were meant to, in verse 4, note the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God, and remember everything we know about those guys. They were terrible leaders. They led through sin and through selfishness. And just as God prophesied to them through the prophet, through Samuel, death has met them in all of this. Perhaps at the core, there's an understanding that, again, God's people were expecting victory because they thought they were doing the right thing. They thought that they got the formula figured out, when in fact, they were way off. They wanted to find the power of God, but they weren't willing to trust his leading in that. And it may be an interesting thing for us to consider because at that moment, it doesn't seem as though there's any worry at all about Hophni and Phinehas joining in the procession or what that meant, what that represented, that they were marked as the leaders of Israel and the effect of their sin on those around them. Do you realize your sin, no matter how private you think it is, it's going to have an effect on people around you? And particularly for those who call themselves leaders and take up positions of leadership, Sin does have an effect on those that are being led. It's one of the big takeaways we should get from this passage. So what is the problem? Sure, they didn't follow his lead. Why? They didn't follow what God had explained to them, what God had brought them into in relationship with him. Rather, they started to boil God down to superstition and strategy and formula. So the conflict then becomes superstition, dethrones God. Not in the sense that we are able and powerful enough to knock God off of his throne, but rather what we do with superstition is replace our affection and allegiance to God with an affection and allegiance and a trust in the power of a formula, in the power of some understanding that is extra-biblical, meaning outside of the Bible, outside of what God has spoken. It's kind of interesting to be thinking about superstition this particular week because of the holiday that just happened a couple days ago. Did anybody get pinched for not wearing green on Friday? It's funny because, let's be honest, if if you're really thinking about who you might see on St. Patrick's Day, you might be wearing green just to get them to leave you alone. You might, in one sense, participate, I put in air quotes, in the superstition so that that annoying person at work who thinks they're Irish because their great-great-great-great-grandfather's aunt's cousin's roommate was Irish, that they need to be pinching you all day long. It's funny how superstition weaves its way into our lives in silly and very meaningless kind of ways, right? There's nothing wrong with wearing green on St. Patrick's Day, but we have to admit that again, we are participating in something that is ultimately superstitious and silly and, and really not very respectful to the guy who... The day's been named after, right? Well, thinking about superstition along St. Patrick's Day, and in, in thinking of this passage, of course, songs come to my mind, and the one that particularly stood out to me was a big one by Stevie Wonder. Do you remember it? It was called Superstition. And he actually has a very interesting line in the chorus. You might be thinking, oh my goodness, don't talk about Stevie Wonder or pop music, please. But listen to what he says about superstition. He defines it as believing in things that you don't understand. The chorus says, when you believe in things that you don't understand, then you suffer. Superstition ain't the way. Is he right? Is that a good view of what superstition really is? Believing in things that we don't understand. And from the Christian standpoint, when we think about salvation and relationship with God, we base it on faith alone, in Christ alone, through the work of Christ alone, to the glory of Christ alone. So where does this understanding thing come into play? Is Stevie correct that if we believe in something with a lack of understanding, that our religion, which he's not directly talking about religion, but let's go ahead and apply it, that our religious perspective, our biblical worldview, could be built on something that we don't actually understand. And more importantly to our text, is that what the elders were doing when they said, let's get out the ark? We believe in the ark, but do they understand it? Do they understand how to access the power of God? Are they actually following his lead or doing something different? Believe in things they don't understand. And then you suffer. You almost wonder if Stevie was reading 1 Samuel 4 when he wrote that. Because they suffered for engaging in something that they believed in, but they didn't understand. That being God. We have a couple more messages in this arc narrative. And I specifically left out any Indiana Jones references here. But I, if you've seen that movie, think on that for a second, too. I, it's funny, I know. But but the Nazis trying to get the Ark of the Covenant. And think about, spoiler alert, the movie's been out longer than I've been alive. But what happens in the end when they open it? it what, ha, what actually happens seems very biblical. The demise of the bad guys in the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark makes a lot of sense in that they believed in something that they didn't understand, and now they suffer. One theme that connects to this superstition that is been, has been very clearly laid out in 1 Samuel already is that of leadership. I read an interesting quote from Alistair Begg this past week. He says, without good leadership, chaos easily follows. Many of the unsolved problems in the life of local churches can be traced back to defective leadership. That is why when you notice a problem in your church, who do you end up telling? Right, The elders, right? Somebody else besides me. You talk to the leadership, there's a problem. We notice that there's something going on here. And that's what they did when they lost. They went to the elders. They said, elders, what's going on? What did we miss? What part of the formula is, has been left out or mixed up? We believe in the ark. We, we believe in God. Oh, you need the ark. That's what you need. Okay, take the ark. And don't forget the priests too, which are a, a sore thumb in everybody's mind. I got to imagine that at least some of those soldiers were looking back at Hophni and Phineas, who probably just eaten their lunch on their march to battle with the Philistines anyway and thinking, what are those bozos doing here? They're the ones that got us in this mess, probably. They're the ones that are supposed to be bringing us into the presence of God, and really they're just a wall keeping us from him. Without good leadership, chaos easily follows. Church, today we need to be aware of the ways that we treat God like a formula, like a simple math equation that if we can figure out the Rubik's Cube, we will unlock the blessing and power of God. Whereas his design is for us to know him, to follow his lead, and thus trust in his power, trust in his power to work through us. And yeah, it's a matter for leadership, but it's also a matter for us individually in our Christian lives. And when we think about being superstitious, we go, okay, I wasn't really that worried about people pinching me on Friday. I look at my keychain, I don't see the lucky rabbit's foot that I had in third grade anymore there. I don't, I don't engage in other practices to affect the weather or affect the outcome of a sports match. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about how superstitious baseball players are. I mean, baseball is, like, rife with, right? Like, so many. Like, what do you do? Like, you don't, if you're pitching, a lot of pitchers, they don't even stand on the mound itself on the little white bar, um, or when the pitchers exit the field, they have to jump over the baseline. It's, it's just kind of funny to see that. Another one, of course, is, you know, you hit a home run, and what do you do on your way to home base? You may not even be a Christian, but you got to be like, thank you, thank you, thank you, right? It's really interesting. Cross-country was really no different. It was just a little simpler. But I ran cross-country, obviously a long time ago, with some people who didn't know Christ and yet our coach insist not insisted, but the regular pattern, and I was glad he did this ultimately, the regular pattern of us on the day of a race was to huddle together to say the Lord's Prayer, at which moment, I mean, every single time I was amazed to look at my atheist friends and be like, how do you even know this, you know? And we say the Lord's Prayer, and we say amen, and then it was so funny what we said next. Our little team motto was, unleash the beast. Which, like, thinking biblically about that sounds really bad, doesn't it? For yours is the kingdom and the glory forever, amen. Unleash the beast on three, right? Let's cover all our bases here. We got Jesus on our side. We got some unnamed beast that's inside of us. I mean, it's just so easy to get wrapped up in superstition when you have sports or when you have some other thing. And I know all these sounds silly, and none of you do these kinds of things. But is it possible that we've taken some of the physical interactions, the physical elements of our Christian life, and engaged in them in a superstitious way? I'll give you some examples. We talked about reading your Bible every morning, right? What happens when you don't read your Bible? Bad things. Karma, right, is what we're talking about in Sunday school. I didn't read my Bible. That's why I got a flat tire. That's superstition, church. Is God possibly trying to speak to you through a flat tire? Sure. Do you know that for sure? I think another big matter of superstition in the Christian church is, and I, pull your toes in. I don't want to step on them too much here. If this, I, I really, I honestly do want to be careful. But the way that we sometimes say, God told me something, you know, that can become superstitious when we throw that kind of around and we subconsciously, we don't even realize, sometimes we're saying God told me this thing just so that people will listen to what I have to say. <coughs> I mean, that's that's part of why when we start a sermon, I try to say, hey, we're going to read from God's word. Reading from God's word is the most important thing we're going to do today. And And part of that is a safeguard for me. If I just totally blow what happens after the reading of it, then at least you've read God's word and that's where the power comes from. But it would be superstitious for me to engage in an idea of saying like, hey, God gave me this sermon. God gave me a message. I believe that. I believe that he does that regularly, but not in the sort of sense that you should believe that I've stayed up late on Saturday night and had an audible conversation with the Lord and just wrote these things down. Superstition is involved in Bible reading. It's involved in our language. It's involved in music. I thought about this with the great shout. You know, yeah, there were some who were going, yes, the ark is here. We've got this. Come on, let's go. But doesn't it remind you a little bit of those worship services that are like, how are you all doing this morning? I can't hear you. I hate that so much. Even mocking it it just gets under my skin. Just that notion of like stirring up emotion. That's superstitious. That's believing in something that you don't understand. And we're in danger of it in so many different ways. It is, in effect, what they did at this battle with the Philistines was to take the Ark of the Covenant and turn it into a trinket. To turn God into a talisman. To say that if I could... I was thinking about this, too, because my daughter's wearing a cross this morning. So I was like, man, honey, that was going to be part of my illustration. It's okay to wear a cross any day. You can do that. But have you ever met somebody, or have you ever done this, where... You know, you're the cross-wearing guy and you don't wear that cross that day and you go, well, I know why all these terrible things happened. I wasn't protected by this little piece of faux gold that I wear around my neck, right? Superstition comes in so easily. Why? Why is that? Well, again, it's this belief that the right use of physical commodities will always bring God's blessing and give us access to God's power. The right use of physical commodities. Now, understand... When we rightly use God's word, we should expect to receive power to understand it and to be changed and to do ministry. Those things are true. But it's not to be a a one-to-one formula like, well, Lord, I read one verse this morning, so I expect one verse worth of power for my Christian life, right? How many of you know that you could spend an hour reading one verse of scripture and it could be far more valuable to you than reading an entire book of scripture, Right At various times, the way God uses his word, it's unique. It's living and active, as the author of Hebrews says. But back to this idea of superstition, that right use of physical commodities will always bring God's power and blessing is because superstition is three things, I think. First of all, it's comfortable, because in superstition, I control what and how much I believe and how I interact with God. Right? God, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna get up at five o'clock tomorrow morning and I'm gonna read the whole book of 1 Samuel. And I expect, right? Then it becomes a transaction. I'm in control here. So I would like God to proportionately bless me with power and with whatever, with success, prosperity, whatever it might be, whatever distortion. Superstition dethrones God because it gives us another source of comfort. That being our own religious machinations. Secondly, superstition leads to legalism. That is the idea of making myself right with God based on my works. It leads to legalism. I can justify my sin if I make the right calculation. I could do some terribly awful sin, but if I can go back home and read my Bible and get online and give to a church and go do these things and sell my house, then I can make atonement. That's superstitious. That's believing in something that you don't understand in the end is suffering thirdly superstition feeds foolishness romans 121 through 22 talks about this how they believed in themselves and their foolish hearts were darkened it feeds pride more than anything again i would point out this notion of throwing around this flippant phrase of god told me something i would challenge you church that if you use that phrase Be very careful that pride is not the motivator. That it is not your desire to gain a following or to gain attention or to gain acceptance through through throwing out this phrase that God gave you something or said something to you. Superstition and salvation by works ultimately reveal that we're not following him. It reveals that we're not accessing his power at all. And ultimately, it is our heart's attempt at dethroning God, taking the ark and putting myself on top of it, rather than making it the throne of the Lord of the universe. The author of First Samuel, though, in contrast to this really dark and nationally tragic story, wants to keep us aware that God is going to address, address that national story as he works through a personal story. And that's why I think it's important for us to read verse 1 at the beginning of this passage. The word of Samuel came to Israel. Remember, again, the end of chapter 3 as well. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from the east to the west knew that Samuel was established as a prophet. That God was doing something in the midst of all this superstitious activity. And if there's superstitious activity in our hearts this morning that we need to get rid of, the only way to do so is to listen to the call of Christ, to follow Him closely, to rest in His saving power, to set aside our own efforts of superstitious Christianity. However big or small those things might be, they cause terrible damage to our walk with Christ. As Israel was defeated because of their sin, Christ faced our sin. Christ defeated our sin. He was also defeated by the wrath of God against our sin. And he calls us personally to put away our superstitions, to put away the things that we base our Christian life on. Again, whatever your talisman might be, that I know God's going to bless me, I'm accessing God's power because I did this thing or whatever, stop and rest in the work of Christ if you know that when you face God in eternity, if you know that all you can say is it's just the blood of Christ that has washed away my sin, then you better be living like that every day as well. And you better be aware of the ways that you might be thinking, yeah, I know that's what it's going to be in the long run, but what about right now? Right now, I really need something from God, so I'm going to fast. I'm going to come to prayer meeting. I'm going to read my Bible. All these good things, church. You should do these things. But our heart motivation reveals whether we know the Savior or not. Lay down your superstitions. See Christ as the power of God. Romans 1.4 says this, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The spirit of holiness. Holiness is so essential in our battle against superstition. And we know that because Hophni and Phineas are mentioned here. They're marching along with all the soldiers. They're part of the problem. They're, in some ways, the root of the problem because they're the leaders of it. They're letting superstition run rampant, and yet we are called to rest in the saving power of Christ, embracing all that he is, and to understand who he is. Not because we're saved by our understanding, but because we walk in that salvation as we better understand the Savior. I think St. Patrick knew this. And maybe you're familiar with his poem that he wrote that became a prayer for so many people. Listen to this. His prayer was, Christ be with me, Christ within me. Christ behind me, Christ before me. Christ beside me, Christ to win me. Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ in quiet, Christ in danger. Christ in hearts of all that love me. Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. Christ alone. No superstition, no additions, no works to access what Christ has done. The presence of God is made perfect in Christ because he is the word made flesh. The power of God is made perfect in Christ because we are saved through his suffering and resurrection. And the promise of God is made perfect in Christ because Christ wrote his covenant with his own blood. And he, to this day, church, can you believe this, bears the scars, the wounds on his hands and feet. As he showed the disciples at the moment of his resurrection, he came to Thomas and said, look, see the scars on my hands and my feet and my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. And from that belief, follow equipped in Christ. Lead equipped in Christ. The end of Alistair's quote from this past week in one of his devotions, in contrast to how you can root so many of the problems in the church back to faulty leadership, he says, conversely, the resolution of problems almost always can be traced back to effective leadership. The resolution of problems can be traced back to effective leadership. Church, we are all called to lead in some context. You may not be a pastor, an elder, a Bible teacher, but you, you might be a mom, a dad, a neighbor, a friend, a brother, a sister. You have a responsibility to lead people to Christ. And the message of Hophni and Phineas is not just for those people who stand behind a music stand on Sunday mornings. It's for us to live holy lives before the God who saved us, who tears away all of our false notions of who he is and helps us walk in the truth of who he is. We need to follow equipped with Christ. We need to lead equipped in Christ. Again, this presence, power, and promise thing, I can't get away from it, but (laughs) the presence of God, the ark as it is represented in 1 Samuel 4. Today, church, we are the body of Christ. Part of our assurance that Christ is with us is looking into the eyes of our brothers and sisters, even right now. The presence of God is made perfect. The power of God is, God has granted to us his spirit. Jesus' plan for the disciples before he ascended back into heaven was he said, wait in Jerusalem and you'll receive power from on high. Who is that power? Not what. Who? The spirit. Granted to every believer. Not the super spiritual, not the superstitious, <laughs> but to anyone who trusts in Christ, the power of God for salvation and for all of life and salvation. And then lastly, again, the promise how he equips us with his presence. He equips us with his power and he equips us with his promise. In Christ, for, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It's the opposite of superstition, church. Be equipped in Christ to know Christ and to have access to that presence, power and promise every day and to walk in that corporately together. No, he is going into battle with you, but he needs to be the one leading the charge. Not because he has an ego trip and he has to be the one at the front, but because he's the only right leader, right? Like, like all the leadership that you experience in your life, that you, that you act out in your life too, it's stemming from another leadership. Peter talks about this with uh, elders and pastors. He says um, to shepherd the flock of God. And then he also says, so that when the chief shepherd appears, you won't be ashamed. Like there's a chief shepherd that we rely on. And it's Christ. So two questions for you at the end. Are there areas of superstition in your life in Christ? Is there any, even the hint, boy, I hope it's just a hint, of course, right? But if there's even a hint of superstition, that notion that no wonder things are going wrong, I didn't go to the prayer meeting, no wonder things are going wrong, I said that bad word yesterday, no wonder things are going wrong, I'm right? That's superstition. You don't know those things, Right? You know that God is always calling you to holiness. He's always calling you to follow him and to access his power through Christ alone. Are there areas of superstition in your life? Secondly and lastly, can you leave them and be equipped with the knowledge of Christ? I can't help but think again to the um, super zealous uh, 0.5% Irish person who has to pinch you all day on St. Patrick's Day. He has to, right? He's got to do it. That superstition is so ingrained in him that it's just fun. Our Christian life is not meant to be an annoying pincher on a Friday afternoon, but it is meant to persist through all of our lives, every aspect, that we do not function outside of faith in Christ in anything, but that he gets the glory by our trust in him and our following him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your grace. Thank you that you've communicated it clearly to us in Christ. And that through your word, we can understand you. We don't need to believe in something that we don't understand. You have made yourself available to us by your word, illuminating your word by your spirit. And I pray that that has been going on in these last moments. Lord, that you would reveal to us the silly things that perhaps we're doing that are just superstitious. Help us walk in faithfulness. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.